Create lasting change, inspire others, and make a difference. You have joined the Influencers Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Donaldson, and each week you will hear from distinguished co-hosts and guests as they share insights into impacting our culture from your neighborhood to the nations. And today we have Doug Weed, who has probably inspired more people around the world than any other person alive. Uh, he is a New York Times bestselling author and former advisor to two American presidents. He served as special assistant to the president in the George H.W. Bush White House. Uh, his books are well known for going to the primary sources. Doug, when you told me about this book, uh, Inside the Trump White House, I got to tell you, my immediate response was finally. We have a resource that originates directly from the source. In this case, President Trump, his family, and administration. And I think, you know, the people that are listening would have to say, regardless of your political bent or persuasion, it's tiresome to hear over and over again that the source is, quote, anonymous. You know, give me a break. You know, these books belong on the fiction, you know, shelf. And, Doug, I want to applaud you for going the extra mile uh, to pursue the source of the story for this amazing book that will be a blockbuster called Inside Trump's White House. Now, tell us, how did this book, Inside Trump's White House, come about? Well, I had uh, met uh, Ivanka Trump uh, when, when Donald Trump became president. Uh, the BBC invited me in to interview me, and they wanted me to come into studio in Washington, D.C. for their early morning London <laughs> telecast. Oh, that's the middle of the night for us here in Washington, D.C. So I didn't want to do that, and they just said, we've got to have, come on, we got, so they sent a car out, so I came in and ruined my sleep that night. And they said, okay, so Donald Trump's president, and he's appointed his daughter, Ivanka Trump, to work in the White House. And that's never happened before. And you're a presidential historian. How do you explain this? And I said, well, first of all, uh, it has happened before. Ivanka Trump is the 19th son or daughter of an American president to be appointed by the president to his White House staff. Uh, it's happened all through history. The first president of the United States to have a son uh, uh, or a child was John Adams, and he appointed his son to his minister to uh, Prussia. So it's very, very common. They were shocked, and they said, well, why would a president want to choose one of their own children? I said, because the most important quality that the president will need, and he'll soon find this out, is loyalty. And a child can give you loyalty. Well, I, I thought I, I got up in the middle of the night and nobody will see this, but at least I'll feel good correcting the record. But I was wrong. wrong. Uh, Ivanka Trump was watching and she sent me an email and thanked me. And I eventually went in there. We visited and I told Ivanka Trump, you know, every president gets an official history. I want to write that history of the Trump White House. And uh, she took my memo down to the president and they said, okay. 
Hey, Dad, speaking of children, it's your son here, and I have a question <laughs> for you. Of all the presidents in the United States, are there any like Trump? And if so, who is the most similar to him? Well, there aren't any quite like him, Scott, uh, who, who are totally non-politicians. But the closest to him uh, is, in my opinion, is Andrew Jackson. I started sharing that from the beginning. Uh, before Andrew Jackson, uh, the first six presidents of the United States were all, all Brahmins. They were of the upper class. Um, they were the aristocracy of America. They either came from one family, John Adams or John Quincy Adams from Massachusetts, or they all the rest of them were Virginia tobacco planters who had slaves and who were extremely wealthy. In fact, George Washington was probably, if you adjusted money for inflation, the richest president in history until Donald Trump. So the first six presidents they were all they all attended Episcopalian church. Now Adams, I guess, was Congregationalist. They had some different views, but they all attended the Episcopal church. Here came Andrew Jackson. He was from the West. They were all from the East Coast. He was a Presbyterian. Uh, he was uh, rough and profane. He had bullets in his body. He died with bullets in his body from duels, from battles. Some of them had the bullets uh, uh, came from misunderstandings and fights. He, he, he argued with his uh, own uh, senator. He argued with his own cabinet and fired so many of them that he started meeting with advisors in the White House secretly, and the room they met in was right near the kitchen, and the newspapers started calling it the kitchen cabinet. Ever since then, every president always had kind of a kitchen cabinet of unofficial advisors. That started with Andrew Jackson, and he was in many ways... Uh, outrageous. They they said he's he's not going to make it, and he was against the uh, elitists uh, who were wanting to set up a second uh, bank, uh, national bank, and he felt it was serving just the richest. So he upset the crony capitalism, drained the swamp of his day, and uh, he's as close as we can find of someone who's similar to a Donald Trump. Now, there's rumors out there, and maybe you can help shed light on this, that the president, Trump, did ne he never expected to win. He, he was actually shocked when he won the election. Is this true? You know, there, there is yes and no. No, in that he had to be emotionally prepared to win and to, and to lose both. And the night of the election, there were very different uh, scenarios unfolding. He knew a few days before the election when Hillary Clinton canceled her fireworks display, he knew that it was possible he could win. The problem was his data, the data he was getting from Brad Parscale, showed that he would win and showed about what actually happened. Brad Parscale had models that, that for example, illustrated that People, they called him the bashful Trump voter. They ran tests uh, of thousands of names, and they would say, who do you support? And they'd have an operator on the line, 
uh, interview people, who would you support for president? And they would say who they're going to vote for, who they'd support. And then they do the same thing and set it up electronically so there was no human voice. You could just punch buttons on the phone. And the difference was 17%. 17% of the people would refuse to identify as a Trump voter if the operator was a human voice because they were uh, afraid of being ridiculed or attacked for what they believed. And these were some of the models. There were other models Pascal ha uh, Pascal had that showed many people would be voting for the first time in their life. They had never, ever voted. And they didn't show up in any of the network polls because they weren't on any lists. So he had that. But Trump also had insiders at ABC and at other uh, networks, and even at Fox, that absolutely told him he was losing. And here were there were key precincts that would tell which way, one way or the other. This information was coming to him the last few days of, of the campaign, and then coming to him all night during the election. There's one point in my book where he sits down with Brad Parscale, and Brad says, sir, you are going to be president of the United States. It is going to happen. Here's the need get out all these pages and papers color-coded. And at one point, Donald Trump said, you know, okay, you may be right. He didn't want to discourage him. He said, but if it's not true and I'm not elected, it's okay. It's okay, Brad. And uh, Steve Bannon was there and uh, Jared Kushner was there. They said, well, what are we going to do? What, what, if we lose this thing, this was early in the night, what should we go tell the people at the Hilton that are waiting uh, and what should we say to them? And Trump said, you know, if, if we lose, I'm just going to go downstairs, go out on Fifth Avenue, hold a press conference. I'm going to say, hey, I tried my best. I'm a patriot. I love this country. And then tomorrow I'm going to get on a plane and I'm going to go to Ireland and play golf. Don't worry about it. So this was Trump what he was saying in the tower, in Trump Tower uh, that night. And then Brad's numbers started to come in and the networks were just totally stunned. And uh, it, was, uh, it, was an, it was an interest, it's an interesting two chapters of the book to follow what they, how they felt and the emotions of that night. Dad, you have had the chance to interview many presidential children, including George W. Bush, who later became president. And I know you had the chance to interview Jared and Ivanka and Don Jr. and Eric and, and um, many of President Trump's children. Can you tell us a story about the kids that maybe no one in the media has oh, shared yet? Yeah. About one of the kids. I have so many, Scott. It's just the night they moved into the White House was just fascinating. They're exhausted. They the the swearing in ceremonies over. They're in the state dining room. The grandkids, uh, they can hear the grandkids squealing and laughing and giggling as they scatter through the state floor, playing a game of hide and go seek with Uncle Barron and uh, Donald Trump's youngest son, Barron, is ten years old when they that when they first move into the White House. And the grandkids just love him. And they're all seated around a long table, the adults in the state dining room. And Laura announces to everyone that she's pregnant. And there's, there's 
delightful cheers at such a peaceful moment. Baron comes running into the state dining room. What, 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 what's going on? He's sweating. And, and they say, uh, well, Laura's going to have a baby. He said, oh, oh, okay. And then he races back out of the room to <laughs> assume his duties as referee for, with the grandkid. And it seems like it's a peaceful night, and they're thinking that night is it's over. The, the nightmare is over. Now the country's going to unite, and we'll get on with the business of, of trying to solve um, the country's problems. And, but little did they know what uh, lay in store for them. There are just so, so many, many stories. I, I, I had the first interview with Tiffany, the only interview Tiffany Trump's given, since uh, her father was elected president. And she's just sharp as a tack. She's going to Georgetown Law School, and she is an absolute delight. She said that the night they went to Buckingham Palace, the whole family, for the state dinner with Queen Elizabeth, they, they didn't have a, a carriage with six white horses. They didn't have uh, a motorcade to take them there. So they rented a bus van, the kind of bus that takes you to your Avis rental car at the airport. And so all the Trump kids in their tuxedos and their beautiful gowns piled into this uh, van bus and said, take us to Buckingham Palace. And that's how they arrived. Man, this is going to be a fun and fascinating book uh, to read, Inside Trump's White House. Uh, Doug, did you have a chance to ask President Trump about his faith? Yeah, we talked at length about uh, his faith. He, uh, it's, it's very prominent and it's very private. Uh, he, he's got his own ideas. He, he's a, he was a devoted student of Norman Vincent Peale. He, he loved Norman Vincent Peale. And uh, he went to his church as a boy. His dad loved Norman Vincent Peale. They'd go to that church. In fact, many people don't know that he met his second wife, Marla Maples, at church. <laughs> they assume he was at a nightclub somewhere, but in fact, he doesn't drink, as you know. So, uh, and Norman Vincent Peale preached this positive message that had appeal to the stockbrokers and to the people in New York City. Uh, so, and you know the Paula White story. He, I interviewed Paula White. I flew to Florida and conducted interviews, and the president wanted me to. The White House wanted me to interview her. They sent me. They said, "We're going to send you a list of the president's closest friends," and that was one of them. And I found it interesting. He's puzzled by uh, crime. He says, "I don't get this crime thing." He'd watched Jimmy Swaggart. He, he liked to watch Jimmy Swaggart early on in the 1980s and uh, his tearful uh, confession that stumped Trump. He said, I don't get it. What's the crying thing? So <laughs> <laughs> now you mentioned Paula White and, you know, both of us agree uh, she is a very impressive person and leader. And you write about the spiritual influence influence that she has on Trump and his family. Uh, how did they meet? And how did her trust and their trust of her grow to this level? Well, they met 19 years ago. They met, uh, uh, he was watching television. He's flipping through the channels. And for some time, he became a, 
uh, a television uh, uh, viewer of Christian TV on Sunday mornings because if he actually went to a church, he was a distraction. He was already a celebrity. So he'd, he'd watch uh, television on Sunday mornings and he saw her and he called her. He said, you got it. You, you got the it factor. You've, he, he liked uh, what she was saying. He had notes on her sermon. He, she said, you know, uh, she has people come up and say, I really enjoyed your sermon. And, but he, she didn't. She said, I didn't, I've never had people come up and, and give it back to me like he could. So he was re- really taking it in. He was hungry and spiritually hungry. And uh, and he trusted her. And he felt uh, she was not judgmental, you know. He, uh, he said, you know, I've been married three times. And she said, me too. <laughs> So he was willing to listen to her and willing to uh, hear her talk about the things of God and uh, that were important to him. Now, I think many Christian leaders, Christian people in general, are in this perpetual tug of war between Trump the person and Trump you know, the policies. And I received on election night a text from a Christian leader, uh, very influential, even in the campaign. And uh, this person sent me this text. Good news, I think we will win. Bad news, I think we will win. And I think there's this conundrum. You know, many, in fact, most of Trump's policies are moral, biblical, you know, values. Uh, for example, he's probably the most pro-life president in history. But when you're watching him speak at a rally, you know, which is entertaining, but at the same time, you got your finger on the mute button because you have no idea, you know, what's going to come out of his mouth, you know, as far as vulgarity. And so how does, how does a Christian reconcile the person with these policies? Well... <laughs> It's not hard for me. It may be hard for other people, but it's not hard for me. I have great love and appreciation for 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 all of uh, the people who are running for president. But uh, when I heard Kamala Harris recently saying that Donald Trump should not be allowed to use Twitter, I'm thinking, hey, if the Democrats win, Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris will be the attorney general. And she doesn't think that a man who was elected president with 63 million votes should be allowed on Twitter. I mean, it's a choice. It's, are we going to, we're either going to have a constitutional republic or we're not. And it looks like we're headed towards a post-constitutional era where uh, uh, rights and uh, what we thought were God-given rights, that's how we saw the Bill of Rights, that's how we saw the Constitution, all of that's being forfeited. I mean, we have national media stories. You, you know, you can worry about cuss words or you can worry about pedophiles, which are covered up by the three major networks who refuse to run the stories. Uh, uh, it, it's tra- tragic to, to see Christians uh, censored on uh, Facebook and uh, censored on YouTube and 
uh, shadow banned and throttled and uh, all the devices that they use. It's uh, it's stunning. That's not going to happen under Donald Trump, but it's sure going to happen if he's not there. And it, it's getting uh, it's getting pretty bad. I mean, uh, when when they pile on on Brett Kavanaugh for uh, uh, allegations that were made when he was in high school uh, by uh, people who, who have no cooperation whatsoever to their stories. And then it's covered up when, when women come forward and tell of being raped when they were 14 years old and have pictures and videos and, and cooperation to their story. And the man who supposedly financed it all ends up mysteriously committing suicide in prison and all the networks covered up. None of them run the details of the story or show any of the pictures or any of the videos. My goodness, is that, is that what we want? We want it, are we ready to end free speech? Uh, not me. Dad, you've had the chance to serve as an advisor to two presidents. I remember as a young teenager when you worked for George Herbert Walker Bush and and living with you in Washington, D.C., when you served there in the White House. As an advisor, if you had the chance to give it advice to President Trump right now with what he's facing with a possible impeachment in the House, what advice I, I would you give him? I wouldn't go there. I, if, if he had listened to my advice, he'd have never been elected president. If he'd listened to my advice, he'd have never run for president. And then when I wrote this book and I learned how he dealt with ISIS and how he dealt with turning around the American economy, it was so counterintuitive how he got these hostages home. We had 16 years of a Republican and Democratic uh, presidents, uh, it's very logical, Scott, their rationale. They, they said, we've got to be quiet because if we talk about the hostages, it increases their value and it increases the number of Americans that will be seized as hostages. The only way we can get these hostages back home is if we keep this quiet. And that morphed into real hostility towards the hostage families. Hostage families were threatened. If you go to the networks with your story, uh, we aren't going to help you, and you're on your own. If you want the United States government to help you get your loved ones back, you keep your mouth shut and you keep quiet. This is done quietly. That's the only way we're going to do it. And when when Donald Trump got into the White House, he was horrified. He was horrified by what he found with NATO. He was horrified by what he found with NAFTA. He, he was horrified by the corruption of it. And no, we're bringing these people home. He's brought 22 of these hostages home. Uh, he took Turkey to the brink of bankruptcy until they released uh, the Christian pastor, Brunson, who I interviewed, by the way, for the book. Uh, he, he, he was willing to bankrupt the country if they wouldn't let him go. They laughed at him when he first started the negotiations and said, we will bring him home. And, and they said, no, you won't. So if he'd listened to my advice, he wouldn't have done all of that. I remember when he shook up NATO and people were saying, this is our oldest alliance. This is ridiculous. What is he doing? But he, he was saying, no, they're not our friends. Yes, these are our friends, sir, our allies. No, they're not our friends. If they're, they signed an agreement, they said they'd pay. They haven't paid a dime. What kind of friend is that? What good is that? And so in spite of all the criticism, 
NATO came to the conclusion he's right. And now they've paid $100 billion. Stop and think of that. Uh, he only needs $1.6 billion to finish his wall with Mexico. NATO has now chucked in $100 billion. Is the new president of the United States, if it's Joe Biden, is he going to refund that? Are the networks all going to say, oh, the President Biden is now refunding to all of those, to Germany, to all of these rich countries. He's giving back the money that Donald Trump took from them that they had promised that they would pay to be a part of the NATO treaty. You can bet it won't be refunded. Oh, what was accomplished was, was great. They wanted the American middle class to pay for their defense and to pay for cleaning up the environment so they could spend money on education, on bridges, on high-speed railway transportation, on, on new highways. And the American middle class has been burdened with cleaning up the pollution of the world and of financing the defense of Japan and Germany and all of these countries. And Trump is saying, no, you got to pay something. It was very funny when I interviewed him, uh, I had lunch with him in the Oval Office, and he got into, you know how he pers impersonates the <laughs> heads of state? So he started impersonating the king, King Salman of Saudi Arabia, and he said, I said to the king, well, we're giving you these missiles, these are billions of dollars in missiles, and you're giving us nothing. And the king would say, yes, yes. Well, you have to pay. Yes, of course, we, we will pay. Well, why haven't you paid? Well, well, nobody asked us. Nobody asked us. Nobody asked you? Well, I'm asking you. Yes, yes, how much? <laughs> so it's very funny, uh, but it's also heartbreaking. Uh, NAFTA is another example. You had all these Republicans saying, oh, he's, he's not for free trade. He's ruining NAFTA, the North America Free Trade Association uh, Agreement. But did you know, you know how many pages NAFTA is? 17,000 pages. Now you tell me, how many pages does it take to write out a free trade agreement? It doesn't take 17,000. The Bible is 1,000 pages. What that means is that nobody on earth has ever read NAFTA. They've read their five pages or their 10 pages or the 20 pages that their industry or their company or their group of people, their trade organization is responsible for and cares about, but nobody's read all of it. And Trump found it to be an absolute mess. And he tore it apart. He renegotiated it. And the Mexicans like it better. The Canadians like it better. And the Americans like it better. And uh, do you think the new president is going to go back to NAFTA? They aren't. Whoever it is, Democrat or Republican, they're going to take what he accomplished and move forward. The problem is a lot of the things he accomplished, they are going to go back on. Hey, Doug. Yes. Uh, I think a lot of people would ask, you know, that the things that you mentioned that the president got done were prior to the house being divided. Uh, number two, we've got this, you know, a probable impeachment in the house. Uh, even Washington insiders claim that the rancor and decisiveness in DC is an all time high. How does the Trump administration get anything done? Uh, the next two years or next year. Well, how did they do it before? I mean, before he was inaugurated, 
they were calling for his impeachment. Then they said he was a Russian spy. Now stop and think about this for a minute. Stop and think of this. Russia, who has, as famously has an economy that's not quite as large as the state of New York, Russia managed to run a candidate for president and get him elected, a Russian spy. Not only that, the New York Times ran an article with a guy claiming that Vladimir Putin was actually his handler. He was giving him the information on what to do. Now, if that's true, that's one of the greatest events in the history of the world. That ranks with landing man on the moon. That ranks with Columbus's voyage across the Atlantic. That ranks with the assassination of Julius Caesar. That is a stunning moment of history. But it's not true. It's ridiculous. And the whole world knew it was ridiculous. It just uh, some of us stupid people in the United States with CNN and the New York Times pushing this idea. Have they apologized for it? Have there been a moment of self-examination? Have they stopped and said, you know, we got kind of carried away. We said that uh, they'd be, be indictments, said that Don Jr. would be indicted. We're, we're sorry, we got a little carried away. No, they just go on to the next one. <laughs> you know, if they'd be a little more humble and maybe apologize for what they got wrong, I'd be more likely to listen to they finally got something. But I'm afraid what they've said and what they've done, these uh, opponents of his, they've kind of inoculated him against believing uh, any of their latest stuff. Dad, I think we know what all the political insiders want for 2020, but what are your predictions? Who do you think is going to win the next election? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's uh, really fascinating to me. If it turned out a surprise landslide victory for Trump, I wouldn't be surprised. If, uh, if he lost, given the fact that the whole national media has a vested interest in him losing, they're going to make money if he loses. They want him to lose. They want globalism. They depend on China uh, and money from China. The academics depend on money from China. Think of this. The only people that really pay for uh, the full tuition at Harvard are people from China, and they limit how many of them can come, and they totally stop any scholarships because so China, you know, is the key to academia and funds most m many of the motion pictures. Uh, all of the tech industries in bed with China. The the Chinese government uses Google and other tech. Uh, companies to help round up Muslims and put them in concentration camps and keep the Falun Gong alive on artificial machines so they can harvest their organs. All of this is going on. Uh, when I ran Canyonville Christian Academy, we had families up there who were from China who were telling us their property was being confiscated. They were being identified through Google. And, and uh, it, it's, it's really... It's, it's 1984. It's a very dangerous time. How will President Trump be remembered? Depends on what happens. But if uh, uh, I asked Jared Kushner uh, that question and about his legacy, and Jared said, you know, I think the time will come many years from now when people are going to miss him. They're going to miss his frankness, his 
complete honesty, his willingness to absolutely say what he's thinking and not be so circumspect about it. And they're going to they're going to be bumper stickers that will say, give us back Trump. That's his prediction. His his daughter, daughter in law, Lara, said, we hold the hope that we when all of this is over and long after we're gone, that we'll be validated and vindicated for the stand that we're taking. So we'll see, as Donald Trump would say, that's one of his cliche expressions. We'll see. Well, Doug, uh, we look forward to reading Inside Trump's White House. And can you share with us how we can get a hold yeah, of that book? InsideTrumpsWhiteHouse.com. And if you go to InsideTrumpsWhiteHouse.com, no apostrophes or anything, there's a landing page there that you can buy it from anybody you want, Amazon or Walmart or Target or Costco or wherever you want to order it, the best price you can get it at, or bookstore, local bookstore, uh, you can get it at any of them. And it is a fun read. You're going to laugh, you're going to cry, and you're going to be amazed at how interesting the truth is. You've read all these anonymous stories from sources that deny they said it. Uh, now you'll be reading a book from people who, who let me tape record them and tape record the interviews. Well, whether you're a, you love Trump or you hate Trump, I think a lot of people are gonna be buying inside Trump's White House. As I mentioned earlier, what a fun and fascinating read this will be. Hey, Doug, one last question. Uh, as our listeners know, you're, you are one of the most dynamic communicators on this planet, and you speak to massive crowds of business people. Uh, but are you also open to sharing at churches? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think more than ever, we need uh, a message of hope. Uh, and, and God gives that. He, he gives us that hope uh, that in spite of the turmoil uh, in the public square, the differences of opinion, I'm sensitive to the pain that people feel. Uh, God gives us hope, and it's, uh, it's, a great, it's a great message. Thank you, Doug. Thank you, Dave. And thank you, Scott. Thanks, Dad. I hope you enjoy listening to Influencers on the Charisma Podcast Network. Join us next week for another thought-provoking episode. And remember to use your influence to move people closer to Jesus.